0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, who did come down to earth from heaven, from the bosom of the Father, and did pour out thy precious blood for the remission of sins, we humbly beseech you that on the day of judgment, standing on your right hand, we may be considered worthy to hear, Come, ye blessed. You who live and reign with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our topic for this evening, part two of our reflections on the nature of the sacrifice, are to delve into what is sacrifice itself, to get some content and context, if you will, for the reality of sacrifice itself and then that reality leading us into an experience with and through the economy of the Blessed Trinity. Before we do that, we need to go back and finish the last part of last week's presentation, which was on Christ and his relationship to the Holy Mass, how in a sense the whole Paschal, not in a sense actually, in reality, the whole Paschal mystery is indeed experienced by us through the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And then as you see, our um, our outline tonight is kind of uh, kind of dense. There's there's a lot we got to get through. I suspect we won't get through all of it, and so you'll have to come back next week to see how it all kind of concludes. I didn't do that intentionally, but that's how it kind of works itself out. So it seems to work well. But before we begin, I was uh, just perusing some of the writings of Saint Jose Maria Escrivá. And these are some of his concluding reflections on the nature of our relationship to the Holy Trinity from a homily he gave on Holy Thursday in 1960. St. Jose Maria Escrivá only celebrated, if my understanding is correct, the traditional Mass. He actually was given a particular permission or indult to be able to do that. And so he says this, I, I will not surprise anyone, this is in the context of a homily, so a little bit more relaxed in its language. I will not surprise anyone if I say that some Christians have a very poor concept of the Holy Mass. For them, it is purely external right, if not a mere social convention. This is because our poor hearts are capable of treating the greatest gift of God to man as routine. In the Mass, in this Mass, that we are now celebrating, the most holy Trinity intervenes. I repeat, in a special way, to correspond to such great love, we must give ourselves completely in body and in soul. We hear God, we talk to Him, we see Him, we taste Him. And when words are enough, we sing, urging our tongue, panje lingua, to proclaim to all mankind the greatness of the Lord. That last sentence where he says, to correspond, we must respond. We hear God, we talk to him, we see him, we taste him. We talk to God. God speaks to us. We are able to see him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread and wine. We taste him when we consume his flesh. And if we are privileged to do so, to drink his blood. We spoke actually last week, just by kind of way of a a brief review, about the necessity of what all of this is about because of original sin, the need to communicate grace in order that we might be able to live God's life. And other sacraments become the means by which we are able to speak to God. If indeed Christ, as we talked about last week, is the primordial sacrament, that foundational revelation of the Father to his creation that allows his creation to then speak back to him, at the heart of the work of Christ as the primordial sacrament is the mystery of the cross and the mystery of his sacrifice. That's why we're spending uh, an infinite amount of time talking about sacrifice. I shared with you last week, I believe that I had been, in a prior earlier in this month, I had been up in South Dakota giving a retreat on the theology of the priesthood to a convent of Carmelite sisters, cloistered Carmelite sisters. One of their charisms is to pray for priests, and so they asked me, actually several years ago, if I would ever be willing to come back and give the retreat. And as the retreat unfolded, what became very clear is that the church early on, and throughout most of her history, understood that the priest existed to offer sacrifice. If you asked a priest before the council, and probably maybe even let's go back just a little bit further to make sure this statement is true, certainly in the 50s, that would have been the answer he would have given you. St. John Paul says in his document, Pastorus d'Abovobis, which was meant to help us kind of rethink and return to uh, an appreciation of and understanding of the priest, he says that the priest's primary identity is relational. The priest in relationship, of course, with the Blessed Trinity, priest in relationship with bishops, other priests, and, of course, the priest in relationship with the people that he's called to serve. There isn't anything wrong with that at all. I mean, that, that certainly does express uh, an aspect, and one could even say the lion's share of the life of the priest is relational. It is dialogical. It is this engagement But the heart of the conversation that the priest has with his people, that he has as a connection to his brother priests, that he certainly has in relationship to the bishop, the great high priest, and of course that which allows him to talk to the Father and the Spirit through the Son, is the sacrifice that he offers. So we talked about the threefold office of Christ as priest, prophet, king. That is not an accidental order. It's intentional and deliberate because it is only as priest that he is then able to properly govern. He is properly able to catechize and instruct. And so oftentimes people will talk about, especially in the modern age, what what are the ways, if you will, that people can exercise other forms of authority that it all shouldn't come down to the priest. Well, the priest gets all the authority, not because he's worthy of it, not because always he's the smartest, most talented person in the room, He may not know the most about theology or psychology or finances. There will always be something that he will lack in his person. But what has made him different and therefore capable of exercising all of the authority that is bestowed upon him is because he has been configured to Christ the high priest to offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice is key. So we seemingly are expending an inordinate amount of time, actually three presentations, looking at this, but that's because of its significance. Because, as St. Jose Maria himself said, people do not understand. We began, of course, in the first set of talks, looking at the ritual itself. But if that's all we ever did, and didn't then reconnect the ritual to the content that it expresses, then it somehow loses its meaning, and it loses its intensity. It does merely become things that we can do over and over and over again that then also can be changed to satisfy the particular needs. There was a, a, a movement, apparently, it may have preceded me just a little bit, um, but it was a rather serious movement to replace the bread and wine for Holy Mass with beer and pizza on college campuses. Now, we laugh at that. seems, I mean, maybe to us it seems that it would be a ridiculous thing to do. But in an attempt to engage college people, of course, you're going to get a whole bunch of college people if you're giving away beer and pizza. It doesn't matter the context in which you're giving it away. If there's free beer and free pizza, they're going to show up. And, of course, again, I don't know who thought of that. I'm not sure where that came from. Maybe it's even a little bit of uh, hyperbole or hagiography as to how it actually happened. Uh, but I know it gained enough cachet that I saw something written about it when I was actually in study. So someone was seriously thinking about the possibility of substituting bread and wine or using other things that would mean, more, mean something more to people. Well, if all the ritual is is just this hollow thing, then I guess in one sense you can replace the ritual elements with different dynamics, or change the ritual elements, or move the ritual elements around, or actually have anyone perform the ritual elements. But if there is a perfect sacrifice, and there is, that must be performed perfectly, rendered back to the Father through the Son perfectly, then the one who offers the sacrifice, the manner in which it is offered, and all the aspects of that sacrifice also must be perfect, they must be done as God himself has ordained them. So let's talk a, a little bit, uh, just to kind of close off last week's conversation about Christ and his relationship to the Holy Mass. Uh, and if you will forgive me, I found a, a wonderful little book from 1896, a wonderful little book from 1896, from a German priest, Father Martin von Kochem, on an explanation of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And he has these various chapters that correspond to the titles that are here on your outline from last week. They're also here present on the outline for today. So we're already at Roman numeral number two, looking at Christ and the Holy Mass. I want to use his words and just offer some reflections because at times... It's simply easier to cheat and borrow from the wisdom of others. There's no reason for me to reinvent the wheel when others have expressed it much better than I. So Christ and the Holy Mass. Christ renews his incarnation in the Holy Mass. And so Father says the following, We know how great, how vast, how inexpressible was the benefit God in his loving kindness bestowed on mankind when the eternal word for the sake of man and his salvation came down from heaven by the operation of the Holy Ghost, became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary and took upon himself our human nature. This incomprehensible mystery it is which the priest adores when in the creed of the the words at incarnatus est, he does not merely bow his head, he bends his knee in reverent awe, returning thanks to the giver of all good for vocation thus deeply to abase himself. Holy Church, in her wisdom, then, has ordained that every year throughout the season of Advent, all the faithful should meditate upon this infinite benefit, devoutly adore the mystery of the Incarnation, and render thanks to God for his goodness, as indeed our bounded duty. For in thus becoming incarnate, Christ won for us such great graces in his human body. He did and suffered, pardon me, uh, won for us such great graces. In his human body he did and suffered so much for us that eternity will not be long enough to render him the thanks that are his due. But marvel of marvels, Christ did not content himself with merely becoming man once for all, in order daily and hourly to renew the increase to renew and increase, excuse me, the satisfaction which his eternal Father and the Holy Ghost have before all time derived from the contemplation of this mystery in the fullness of his divine wisdom. He devised and instituted the sublime mystery of the mass in which his incarnation is renewed as definitely as in reality it again took place we speak about the holy sacrifice of the mass as a full entrance into the full and the paschal mystery which means the reality of those things that unfolded in time and history are made available and accessible to us throughout across time and history. So he beautifully recapitulates the theology of the Incarnation for us and reminds us that liturgically we make manifest our faith in the Word made flesh by not just bowing our heads but bending our knees as we are required to do so. And of course the whole season of Advent is this ongoing contemplation in preparation for what was, what is, and what will be related to the Incarnation And then he beautifully reminds us that this also is experienced real and true in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. For this we have the authority of the Catholic Church, for in the secret prayers for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost we read, as often as the remembrance of this victim is celebrated, so often is the work of our redemption carried on. The words are not, so often is the work of our redemption represented, but So often is the work of our redemption carried on. He wants to make very clear to us, and this is what we have to keep in mind, that we're not repeating to build on what Christ did, because we cannot. Rather, we are experiencing through the means that he gave to us the ability of those things that he himself accomplished. It is his work, his redemption, that we continue to have access to, not build upon, not repeat, not improve upon. And what is this work of our redemption but the incarnation, the birth, the passion, and the death of our Savior, all of which are readily accomplished and renewed every time the Mass is celebrated. And so here we have this beautiful ritual that should then correspond to what it is that we are actually celebrating. If indeed a part of what is happening at Holy Mass is this opportunity to have yet again an experience of the Incarnation, then what we do ritualistically should reflect this. So you can see that where some of our conversation from last time, not last week, but the three prior, does bring into kind of stark contrast some of the differences between the extraordinary form and the ordinary form, between the traditional Mass and the Novus Ordo. The question must always be asked about what we do liturgically, is does it help us, does it express what it is that we believe theologically? There is then the renewal not only of his incarnation, but there also is the renewal then of his nativity. Again, this is of Father Van Kotchem. Although we rightly count those privileged persons happy, those who were present at the Lord's birth, Yet it must not be forgotten that we are even more privileged than they, since we may daily gaze with the eye of faith on the tender infant and may share in the gladness attending his birth. Every day, every time we come to Mass, in truth we could argue every time we come into our Lord's Eucharistic presence, we are coming yet again into the presence of the child, the infant held in his mother's arms. From the words of Pope Leo I, our minds enlightened and our love enkindled by the record of the evangelists and the utterances of the prophets, we do not seem to regard the birth of Christ as an event of the past, but as one present to our sight. For we hear proclaimed to us, the angel announced to the shepherds, Behold, I bring to you tidings of great joy. This day is born to you a Savior." Every day we may be present at this happy birth. Every day our eyes may behold if we will but go to Mass. For then it is indeed renewed, and by the work itself our salvation is carried on. To be present at Holy Mass is to hear yet again the good news proclaimed by the angels that indeed our Messiah is with us. And to accept this, which is what our faith has consistently taught us, And there always is, tangentially, we're going to delve into this a little bit more uh, in just a few moments, a reaffirmation of our faith in our Lord's real presence. All of this is true. All of this is able to be experienced presently. Not just the reenactment of a past event, but the entrance into the experience of a present reality, because our Lord is present body, blood, soul, and divinity. And then one could also reason in the opposite, if you will, that if he is not present, then the liturgies and the realities connected to praying to him somehow lack their power and content, because then how are they substantially different from the rituals of the Old Testament? What's the difference? There is a lack of efficacy in the Old Testament rituals that becomes effective in Christ himself. He makes very clear he's come not to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. And the fulfillment of the law is no longer something outside of us. Yes, there are ritual things that we must do, but it must also correspond internally. Now that was also the exhortation uh, in the old dispensation as well. The prophet Joel, rend your hearts and not your garments. There was always the exhortation to make sure there was a correspondence between what we did and who we are. We are God's chosen people doing the things that God has commanded us to do. We then should behave like God's chosen people. The constant exhortation in the Old Testament, the Lord reminds again and again, remember the widow, the orphan, the disenfranchised. Why? Why are we doing that? Because I've been good to you, and therefore internally you should know that you then outwardly need to be good to other people. Your goodness cannot consist simply in doing these things. It also must be me, or must be you, inside. The question is, how does this happen? And of course, we spoke about this already. The mystery of the Incarnation, our Blessed Mother, is the first one to make manifest that now the law literally dwells inside of us. It's not just simply something contained outside, something that simply is in form and matter. It also is literally in us. But if that's the case for her, how is that going to be for us? We cannot be Our Lady. We certainly can't give birth to God again and again. Of course, our Lord has already planned this out for us. It'll be through the reception of the Most Holy Eucharist. The living God himself will also come to us. He will literally make his dwelling inside of us. I remember when I was a newly ordained priest, there was a great server, an older gentleman who served daily Mass for me. Uh, a great inspiration. Actually, I ran into his daughter, who's a funeral home director, uh, about two or three years ago. He had died about ten years ago, and somehow we were talking about, as St. Louis or want to do, where'd you grow up, where'd you go to grade school, where you're from, all those kind of inf- pieces of information that give you something about the history and background of an individual. We, turned out, it, I knew her father, Tom, and I just spent about 15, 20 minutes just talking about what a wonderful man he was and all the memories. But every time after Holy Communion, he would come and he would bow to me. At first, I assumed it was because he was bowing to me out of reverence to the fact that I was a priest, which I, I appreciated. But I also felt a little bit off-put by that because I thought, oh, I don't want those signs of reverence. And so one day, this went on probably for six months before I kind of worked up the nerve. When you're a newly ordained priest, you don't want to upset anybody right away. After the first two or three years, you realize it doesn't matter what you're going to do, you're going to upset somebody, so you might as well just go ahead and upset everybody and be done with it. It's kind of even that way. Uh, So I went to him and politely just said, you know, Tom, I really wish wish you wouldn't bow to me. He goes, well, Father, in truth, I'm not just bowing to you, I'm bowing to the Christ who's in you. You've just received Holy Communion. Christ is there. Now, there are lots of theological conversations about how long the presence of God perdures, but it certainly perdures enough from the act of reception and distribution till we process out from Holy Mass. And again, it's one of those things you know, but then I'm hearing it, In one sense, from the mind of a man who doesn't have the theological education. that He was a smart man, but not theologically educated in the way that I am. So it's not to say he doesn't know anything. But he certainly knew everything that he needed to know. And that is, God is with us. And God in us is real. And so this entrance into the mystery of the incarnation is because these realities that we're entering into are precisely that. They are real and true. It's been argued by some theologians that actually reality consists only in the things of God. If you're going to speak about reality, then you can only speak about the things of God. Everything else in your life is unreal or a pale comparison. So if someone at your job or your work or your family says, you know, who doesn't go to church, doesn't believe in God, starts chastising you about reality, tell them, yes, fine, let's go to church together. Let's bend our knees before the living God. Let's have faith in God because that is real. Letter C. Christ renews his life on earth. And again, this information that's being provided for us, it it isn't particularly earth-shattering. In its presentation, it is quite beautiful, and really providing for us ultimately an opportunity to yet again meditate on how profound our faith is. We're concluding next week. And interesting enough, it wasn't my intention initially to conclude this during Holy Week, but I knew I was going to be gone the first Tuesday, the second Tuesday, actually, I was gone the first and the second Tuesdays of the month. Obviously, I couldn't do it during Easter. I didn't want it to drag. So I said, we'll just do it these days. It will be done before Easter. But how beautiful we'll have a chance to meditate on all of these things as we move into, now we're in Passion Tide, Palm Sunday, this Sunday, and then move to the Sacred Triduum itself. Lots of beautiful opportunities for us to pray here throughout the Sacred Triduum and to bring all that we're talking about, all that we're discussing, to bear when we come to pray. Again, Father says this, It may be said that our Lord put on the sacerdotal vestments when, hidden from sight in his mother's womb, he took our flesh and assumed the garb of mortality. Abbot Marmion says the same thing. Christ actually became priest at the Incarnation. He exercises his priestly ministry on the cross— But since all of this is of a piece for him, you can't separate them out. Again, we experience them as such. And he allows himself to have these experiences unfold chronologically, limited by time and space. But in truth, because of the person himself, the God-man himself, they aren't limited by time and space. So, he took our flesh and assumed the garb of mortality, issuing thence on the night of the nativity as from the sacristy, He began on his entrance into the world the introit, which is the commencement of the Mass. The cries he uttered in the crib were the Kyrie. The Gloria was sung by the angels who appeared to the shepherds. The Collects represent the petitions he offered when he spent the night in prayer, imploring for us the mercy of God. The epistle represents the instructions he gave on the prophecies of Moses and the prophets showing how they were fulfilled in himself. He read the gospel when he traversed the country of Judea, proclaiming his divine doctrines. The offertory was when he daily made an oblation of himself to God the Father for the redemption of mankind as a propitiatory victim. We'll come back to that. The preface represents his daily tribute of praise to God the Father, his thanksgiving for the benefits conferred upon man. The Sanctus was sung by the Hebrew people on Palm Sunday when they cried, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The consecration took place at the Last Supper, when he changed bread and wine into his body and blood. The elevation was when he was lifted up upon the cross and made a spectacle to angels and to men. The Paternoster represents the seven words he uttered upon the cross— The breaking of the host, the separation of his sacred soul and body. The Agnus Dei was spoken by the centurion and those who were with him when smiting their breasts. They said, indeed, this was the Son of God. The communion represents the anointing of our Lord's body and laying it in the tomb. The blessing at the conclusion of Mass represents the benediction he gave to his disciples when about to ascend into heaven. I'm going to make that available to everybody because I think you're going to want to come back and contemplate that over and over again. I kind of want to stop right there and just kind of sit out there with you for the next hour and think about that. Uh, there was this tradition that developed in the early Middle Ages and continued through the Middle Ages, High Middle Ages, of kind of not kind of, again. I shouldn't say kind of of allegorical aspects or allegorization of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Oftentimes, then dismissed as lacking sophistication. Here, Father seems to kind of force things into place, but in truth, he does not. He simply points out these beautiful aspects of Holy Mass that correspond to the unfolding of the Lord's life here on earth. Two more final thoughts, then. Christ renews his intercession for us, and then Christ renews his passion. Again, Father says to us, St. Lawrence Justinian thus describes the manner in which Christ offers this intercession— when Christ is spiritually slain upon the altar, he calls upon his heavenly Father. He shows him his wounds, that in virtue of his earnest supplication man may escape eternal damnation. When Christ is spiritually slain upon the altar, he calls upon his heavenly Father. He shows him his wounds, that in virtue of his earnest supplication man may escape eternal damnation. The Lord takes it upon himself. These are consoling words, for they show how faithfully Christ intercedes for us, how deeply he interests himself in our behalf. During his sojourn upon earth, he took our salvation so much to heart that he oftentimes spent the whole night in prayer and in watching. As St. Luke expressly tells us, he went out into the mountain to pray, and he passed the whole night in the prayer of God. This was no infrequent occurrence, as we learn from the same evangelist. In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night, going out, he abode in the mount that is called Olivet. In the following chapter, he adds, he went according to his custom to the Mount of Olives. These words testify unmistakably that Jesus was accustomed to go out to the Mount of Olives and remain all night long at prayer under the open vault of heaven to make intercession for us. That act of intercession, of course, finds its highest expression in the intercessory prayer that is the whole sacrifice of the Mass itself. Christ is concerned about our salvation. I had to remind someone of this in a conversation, that the purpose of the church was not to teach. The purpose of the church was to save souls. Yes, we save souls through teaching— We save souls through evangelization. We save souls through caring for the poor, the indigent, those who are marginalized and alienated. All those things are true. But if we cannot do those things, the one thing that we should always be doing is working for the salvation of souls. I had this conversation in another venue with a priest where I had to remind him. Excuse me just one second. I'm going to take a little drink of water here. A brother priest who was kind of bemoaning the emptiness and the disinterestedness that was developing in his priesthood, he simply didn't find any of it meaningful, the things that he did. And I had to remind him that the best thing he did was to get up in the morning and celebrate Holy Mass. Sadly, he wasn't convinced. By God's grace, he's still the priest. Thanks be to God. But if no priest believes that the best thing he does is to offer the Holy Sacrifice and by extension, the other sacraments... Then he's losing sight of why the church exists. She is the spouse of Christ, that reality of mediation that continues to allow Christ himself, as Paul tells us in Hebrews, to make intercession on our behalf, to continue to offer sacrifice on our behalf. Excuse me. Finally, Christ renews his passion. This, in some ways, is probably the easiest for us to understand. A lot going on here, so I will try to be as brief with this as possible. Among all the mysteries of the life of Christ, there is none, pardon me, there is not one which can be meditated upon with greater profit or which has greater claim on our adoration than his bitter passion and death, by means of which our redemption was effected. Christ dying on the cross fulfills the work of God and brings about our redemption. The fathers of the church tell us that those who meditate upon and venerate our Lord's passion will obtain a rich reward. There are many different methods of doing this, each profitable in its own way, but none can be better than that of hearing Mass attentively. There are a variety of ways to meditate upon the mystery of the Lord's cross and the efficacy of that sacrifice for us when he gives us the gift of himself by taking all sin and then dying on the cross. But we can pray the stations of the cross, we can meditate through other writers, other works, we can simply sit in the Lord's presence and meditate. But as he beautifully points out, the Mass and our attentiveness at Holy Mass is the best way for us to truly enter into and to meditate upon and to venerate our Lord's sufferings. For then, he says, the bitter passion is in reality suffered anew, reiterated for our benefits, and consequently we can meditate upon it more easily and represent it to ourselves more forcibly. Because what we're entering into is real and true, we've already established that by our Lord's real presence. It contains his incarnation, his intercessory work, it contains his life, his birth, all of that is there, and now all of this in his passion as well. At Holy Mass, because it's real, it can't remain distant from us. There's a certain kind of maybe forensic approach that one can have to the stations of the cross as we move from one to the next to the next. And certainly uh, one can read and meditate in that regard, but still keep himself distant from what actually is transpiring. But to come to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, you're forced, you're compelled to lean into and accept what the Lord himself is suffering for you. You cannot be distant from it. Because especially if you come forward and kneel to receive the living God, and you say amen to the body of Christ, what you're acknowledging is the fullness of all of this. Your act of reception is an openness to, an acceptance of, and a faith in all that we have spoken about. It isn't just the bits and pieces that you like, or those that are convenient to you, or those that are easy to live out. It's the whole reality. And you can then understand why there was a long tradition in the church of people refraining from Holy Communion. Not only because they were aware of their sinfulness, but because they also were aware of how profound the commitment was of what, or rather of whom, they were actually receiving. So when we are present at the holy sacrifice of the Mass, all of Christ is present there with us as well. So let's switch gears a little bit. Ooh, good. I said I would leave some time for questions and answers from last week, and maybe before we make our tradition and in, uh, transition into talking about the nature of sacrifice, are there any questions thus far? I'm going to give you my email address too. A couple of people email me some questions that they had. Sometimes when you go home and you think about things, questions come to you. If you email me now, I probably will not get to them realistically and probably until after Holy Week, sometime during the octave of Easter, but you can email them to me now. My email address is very simple. It's Monsignor, abbreviated, M-S-G-R, Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, at gmail.com. You can find it on our website. You can email me through the website, you can get a hold of me either way, either directly through my own email, again, monsignormores at gmail.com. Any questions? Okay, let's talk about sacrifice. We're going to go into the weeds a little bit here, so just bear with me, okay? It'll be worthwhile for us to go off the beaten path because the end result will give us, a, hopefully, a, a deeper understanding of the nature of sacrifice. So, these are some first some general ideas about sacrifice, then I'm going to come back and put some more meat on them. And then I want to talk about theories of sacrifice founded in the history of religion, because interestingly enough, most religions of any stripe have some form, some reality of sacrifice as part of their religious experience. Whether it is the natural religions, the Roman and Greco religions themselves, Eastern religions and the mysticism of those, whatever those might be, they have some sense of making sacrifice or making Of oneself, sacrifice to God. So, the general ideas about the nature of sacrifice. The the nature of sacrifice, in a general sense, denotes an attitude of man before God. Sacrifice always involves God or gods or the other. We never make sacrifice to one another. We might offer something as sacrifice, we might lay down our lives as a sacrifice for someone else. We don't offer sacrifice to someone else. The very nature of sacrifice implies someone who is better and someone who is lesser, for lack of a better way of describing it. But to give it a a more positive interpretation, sacrifice expresses man's duty of total dedication to God. Whether he's dedicated to God for the remission of his sins whether he's dedicated to God to give him thanks for the blessings received, whether he's dedicated to God uh, in order to stave off any punishment that he deserves, regardless of the reason of the sacrifice, there is this duty of total dedication of man before God for our purposes, but again, in a general sense in the history of religion, even if there are other gods in play. But it is only possible in reference to God Himself, Meaning, we can only offer sacrifice to God by some insight into our relationship with him. Meaning, he deserves sacrifice, he needs sacrifice, he demands sacrifice, whatever it might be. But by the, again, by the nature of offering sacrifice to God, not only does it express who we are before God, but expresses the nature of our relationship with God. Who am I? I am the one who must offer sacrifice. And why? Because in this relationship with the other who is greater than I, it lets me know there's something about this relationship. He can forgive my sins. He can uh, continue to bless me. Uh, He can provide new life for me. He can draw me unto himself. Again, there may be a whole host of reasons attached to the actual act of sacrifice itself. This understanding then helps us, helps us understand that sacrificing to God is something, again, altogether different than anything else that we do. While it might have some connection, to, again, to our own relationships with other human persons because we, again, might make sacrifice for others, we don't make sacrifice to them, we make sacrifice for them. There is something personal in this confession of faith that comes through the act of sacrifice. It really is the individual offering the sacrifice to the one who's going to receive it. Even when he does it on behalf of other peoples, there still is something personal and intimate there. To give a gift to someone is to recognize a relationship that is already present. An acknowledgment that the person then receiving the gift is open to its reception, will receive it and we'll be grateful for it. I got a gift today on the radio. I didn't anticipate it. One of my former students brought me a bottle of my favorite bourbon. Didn't anticipate that. It was very nice. He kind of snuck it in a, not a brown bag, so it wasn't that seedy and unseemly. It was a plastic bag, and then it was in a little blue thing. I'm sure his wife told him to put it in something a little nicer than that, so we didn't look like hobos drinking bourbon in the middle of the day. But it was nice. It was nice, this gift. Now, obviously, I'm not a god, so he's not trying to appease me. But there is an understanding of relationship. He knew, as he said, I understand, a little bird told him, I know who the little bird is, that this is one of your favorite burdens. I'm glad that bird likes to chirp, chirp, chirp. So he knew something about our relationship. He knew that I would receive the gift. I mean, come on, it's a good bourbon, who wouldn't? And he gave me the gift. So all of that interchange right there reflects, in some sense, this understanding of what the relationship is, the giving of gift the passing on of one thing to another. This is part of our interactions with one another, hence an uncomfortableness or an awkwardness occasions when receiving a gift from someone where the relationship doesn't seem to warrant it. Why do they do that for me? Why do they give this to me? What am I supposed to make of this? If someone were to... Well, I don't know. I'm not sure there's any gift anybody could give me that I necessarily wouldn't keep, but... There might be something bestowed upon me that would seemingly be inappropriate. What's going on here? Why am I receiving this? It is the reciprocity, and that's why we're talking about gift right now, in relationship, giver and receiver, that sheds light on the personal relationship that we have with God. Insofar as God has no need of our gift or sacrifice in this context, but he accepts the sacrifice, the gift, nonetheless. Sacrifice in its material aspect is usually manifested by some type of gift. So, the sacrifice recognizes my relationship with God. The nature of sacrifice then reveals something about that relationship. I am related, and in this relationship, I'm asking God to do something or be a part of something, and then I actually manifest this this relationship by giving Him something. That's sacrifice. It's a gift given. The first fruits that Abel gives that makes his brother Cain jealous of what it is that he does. Now, the interesting thing is that the origins of sacrifice, and I alluded to this a little bit, the origins and nature of sacrifice actually aren't very clear. The beginnings of sacrifice, in a sense, are hidden in the prehistory of life. The earliest narratives of Genesis record the fact, but gives no account of the origins from which they come, or the primary idea. The custom is sanctioned by sacred writings, meaning when the writers begin to put on paper what had maybe been oral tradition of the beginnings of time to reveal what God himself had spoken and their understanding of that conversation into which they actually entered, sacrifice was a part of that conversation. And again, it cuts across the board. The Semitic peoples, Greeks and Romans, all throughout Africa, uh, in Indian culture, the Indians of Mexico particularly, but Indians on the continent as well, all had some form of sacrifice and what sacrifice actually meant. There are different theories. I don't want to go through all of these, but I want to touch on just a few of them because they eventually make their way into our understanding of the nature of sacrifice. So one theory as to the nature of where sacrifice came from is that, of course, God himself initiated this rite in order for us to be in relationship with him. We know in part that that is true because the sacrifice that we have and that we offer back to God, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, is what he gave us to give back to him. It is his initiation. It is his impetus that allows us to offer the perfect sacrifice. We could not have done that as much as we tried, Its perfection only came about when God turns to God. There is, in this theory, an understanding of a monotheistic God. This doesn't work for the plurality of gods, because we know about the plurality of gods as that sometimes they warred against themselves, and they themselves did not have, in Roman and Greco culture, an understanding of that intimacy with their gods. But... There is a reality to this that is present in what it is that we do. God initiated this. Another theory about sacrifice is that it originated as giving gifts to the gods or God himself. By this theory, it is held that sacrifices were originally presents to the deity, which the offer took for granted would be received with pleasure and even gratitude. So it wasn't for appeasement necessarily. It wasn't for the expiation of sin. It was maybe to curry favor with the gods, so you bring them gifts, little favors. We do that even now. Again, we offer to our loved ones little trinkets, outward manifestations of the interior relationship into which we enter. Such motives, while certainly true among many heathen people, were obviously based upon, in a sense, a lower conception of the deity, as if somehow the deity could easily be manipulated by receiving these small tokens of favor from someone lesser than themselves. There is also the theory of communion in the giving of sacrifice, that there is a reciprocity and a bond that is entered into when one offers the sacrifice. This is clearly present in our understanding of sacrifice as well. That when one gives a sacrifice, the one or a gift in this say we're using those kind of interchangeably, but when one offers to one greater than himself gift or sacrifice, to receive that commits the God to relationship with that individual as well. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the commitment. We talked a little bit about this last week. This is why blood sacrifices do originate in some cultures. Human sacrifices originate. We find that repugnant and believe ourselves better than they, but that's with the lens of some 25, 3,000 years, maybe a little bit longer. And, of course, God himself, in his conversation with the ancient Israelites, making very clear that his chosen people were distinct from all those around them who may have been given to human sacrifices. But the impetus for human sacrifice still makes sense. Because what's the greatest thing or entity or gift that can be offered than our own self, another human being? Now, instinctively, we're not going to offer ourselves. We're going to offer somebody else. Okay. That's when it gets even a little bit more dicey. It's one thing if you want to do it for yourself. But you really can't force a whole group of people to line up and have their hearts pulled out from their chests to be sacrificed to the gods. Okay, that's when it gets a little wonky, if you will. But there is still some wisdom, some understanding that's present there. That Okay, what am I going to do? What, what, what can I give? I can give grain. I can give cereal. I can give the first fruits of the harvest that I have brought in. I can maybe give a, a lamb or a goat or a turtle dove. Maybe I can give a bull or an ox. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're more valuable. But notice what's happening. We're moving from things that are, in a sense, small and insignificant to things even greater, more valuable, especially in ancient cultures. Well, what's the greatest thing? Well, I'll give a human being. God will have to then accept that. And if he does accept that, then he's accepting me and pulling me in into relationship with him. So again, we have some of the the gift, if you will. We have, of course, some of the divine initiation present here. We have also some of this reality of communion theory present there. So you can see aspects of different types of sacrifice throughout time that are all going to come perfectly into the mystery of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. There is the theory that sacrifices are expiatory. Their purpose of them is to atone. This theory holds that that's the primary purpose, purpose of sacrifice, is to atone. And the death of whatever beast is put to death is a vicarious expiation of the sins of the offerer, by shedding the blood of bulls, by having a scapegoat. That name that we use now, that word we use now to put blame on someone else who is blameless actually came from precisely doing that, attaching to a living creature lesser than ourselves all of our sins or all of our faults or failings, and again, seeking expiation through this act of destruction on this animal, that then my sins would be washed away because of this. The unifying principle in all the sacrifices, and there are other theories that I didn't go into because they aren't pertinent to our conversation, but this is an interesting study on the history of sacrifice, but that's not our purposes here. The unifying principle in all sacrifices is that the divine is put in communication with the profane by an intermediary, the victim, which may be uh, any number of things offered. But the unifying principle of all of these sacrifices is that the divine is put into communication with something that is profane, something created by an intermediary. There's something between God and men, bringing them together, forcing them into relationship. This goes back again to that conversation. Again, I used the word dialogue last week. Here, it's communication, but it's the same thing. God speaks. We have to respond. So when all of this is said and done, uh, the most natural and most simple, and the only way that can explain certain sacrifices, man felt himself under liability to punishment or to death. The animal was his. It had life. It was of value. And perchance, the God would accept that life in place of his own. He felt that it would be accepted, and thus the animal was sacrificed. The offerer, in a sense, then gives up a part of himself, That's why we don't offer that which is left over, we offer the first fruits. We offer that which is unblemished, that which is pure, that which is first, not that which is last, or left over. And again, why? Because we're trying to express this desire for expiation, this desire for communion, uh, this desire to give gift and sacrifice. The beast must be his own. No sacrifice can be made of another person's property, quoting from Samuel 2. The true spirit of sacrifice appears in a willingness to acknowledge God's right to what is best and dearest. Again, from Genesis 12, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice because it was the first of what Abel himself had received. All right, so what can we say in all of this about the nature of sacrifice to give some little bit more meat to it? In general, sacrifice is an offering of a gift to God. It has four particular elements. The first, that there is a sacrificial gift. Secondly, that there is a sacrif- sacrificing minister. Let me repeat that. First, there is a gift. Then there is a sacrificing minister. There is a sacrificial action. And then there is a sacrificial end or object attached to it. So there is a gift itself. There is someone offering the gift. There is an action indicating that the offering is actually being made. And then there is a reason at the end why this particular action being offered by this man and this particular gift are being offered. The gift, the minister, the action, and the end. Let's parse some of these out a little bit. The gift itself always involves something physical, something material and visible, withdrawn from profane usage and dedicated to God. And so what do we do? We use simple gifts of bread and wine, which are profane in that we use them in other situations. Obviously, we eat bread, we drink wine. Everybody drinks wine, I hope. We are Catholic, after all. Not in excess, but every once in a while it's not going to hurt you. But then we take them and we set them aside so that that which is profane can become sacred. In a sense, this is to distinguish it from a a figurative sacrifice, meaning it is a, a, a real sacrifice has to have something physical attached to it. We can make interior sacrifices by sacrificing our wills, which we're required to do, Sacrificing our industry, our own directedness, offering all of that up as gift to God. But sacrifice in its particular sense does involve something physical. In a sense, it's more than just simply offering something to God. It is dedicating to God the first fruits, the best of ourselves. I was talking with someone the other day about the motto of the Society of Jesus, Ad Maiorum Dei Gloriam, to the greatest glory of God. Not just to the glory of God, not just to the great glory of God, but to the greatest glory of God. Ignatius dedicated himself, his brothers, and his followers, leaving nothing on the battlefield and giving everything over to our Lord. That's what sacrifice must always be. The first, the best. His Eminence, Cardinal Burke, would always remind us Uh, when we were at times purchasing various liturgical realities, that we don't skimp necessarily on what we do, precisely because what's happening at the Holy Sacrifice of of the Mass is giving God the best. Now, it doesn't mean the priest is adorned with gold from head to toe, that he's got bling on his fingers and bells on his toes. But he's also not dressed in sweatpants and a t-shirt. He's not wearing a, a burlap sap. He's not wearing street clothes. He adorns himself. And again, in a sense, we do the same. We come uh, in our Sunday best, from where that phrase actually comes. That clothing that would have been set aside for that one day where we need to look the best. Not necessarily because we were impressing other people, although at times that might have been the motivation of our parents when they were trying to get us cleaned up and looking good. But the truth is because we were coming into God's presence. And we needed to look our best if we know that there are people that we would not go visit looking like ragtag ragamuffins, as my mother would often say, if we know that on a human level, how much more so than on a spiritual and supernatural level? So this is, again, the reality of the sacrificial gift, but in truth, that which surrounds the whole sacrifice. It is the first and the best. Secondly, this minister is usually someone who is set aside to offer the sacrifice. It isn't just some willingly person off the street. And he is usually referred to as priest, or in the case of those pagan cultures, priestesses. And it was his job to offer the sacrifice. He's set apart specifically to offer that which is given to him to offer. Again, we have the gift, we have the minister. And the minister is set aside to do that, because again, if the gift itself needs to be the best, so too, it would rightly reason, would be the one who is offering the sacrifice as well. He too needs to be purified. He too needs to be uh, set apart, dedicated, taken from the profane world, and set aside for sacred duty even when others are called to actually do the destroying. So, what do we mean by that? It was always very common that the priests themselves would not be the one actually destroying uh, the lambs for the Passover or the bulls that would be prepared, necessarily. But even when others are actually called to do the physical act of destroying of that which was to be offered, there were still those set aside who were then going to take that which was destroyed and offer it over. Since the time of the Mosaic Law, the exercise of sacrificial ministry was confined to the Levites. We know that there is a priesthood older than that of the Levites, that which traces its origins to Melchizedek. We find Melchizedek in Genesis in his interactions with Abraham. Abram, actually, pardon me. Abram, who has been successful in battle, he encounters the priest king of Salem, of peace. Melchizedek, who comes and does homage, does offering to him. But the origins of the Lord's priesthood, according to the insights of St. Paul in his letter to the Hebrews, comes from this older tradition. He situates the priesthood of Christ not in a natural lineage, but in a divine one. Christ is properly priest because the Father has called him to give, of, uh, called him to do so, giving to him the ultimate definitive authority to offer sacrifice. But of course, when we look at Christ, we can already see the perfection of the elements. He's the gift, that's perfect. He's the priest, that's also perfect. So we've got two aspects of the four. The object that is uh, given, the minister who's giving it, and then the sacred action. The action consists in the external offering of the gift. Again, we said not only does the gift need to be physical, there needs to be some act whereby it's being separated from the one who is giving it to the one who is receiving it. And the offering oftentimes manifested itself through the transformation of the gift. So to be clear, not only was the first fruits or the best of the lot or the litter set aside, but then it was transformed in some way to make clear what was actually happening in this act of making sacrifice. The act of transformation either involves changing the animal, changing it in some way, and or destroying it completely, that act of complete and total immolation. When Moses blesses the people after he split the a bull, or the heifer, one of the two that he has destroyed and burns up everything that is left over and sprinkled the people with the blood of the sacrifice offered, committing themselves to that which is he has committed, been committed to on their behalf by receiving the Ten Commandments. So Christ, again, is properly priest because, again, the sacrifice itself, then as minister of the sacrifice, that which is being offered, the minister, and then the sacred action itself. In the final analysis, it is sufficient that some transformation happen. The focus, in a sense, is on the offering up or the offering over of the sacrificing, involving some degree of transformation. Of course, the Lord undergoes the greatest transformation. He dies and is restored to new life. He is completely transformed in a sense, obliterated. He submits himself to the ultimate indignity. So now, the perfect action, or the perfect gift, God himself, in the person of his Son. The perfect minister set aside, Christ, uh, inaugurated priest at the moment of his incarnation. Now the perfect action through the mystery of his cross. And then finally, the end, the end, obviously, as we've already articulated, involves some degree of surrender to God, some degree of surrender of ourselves. A recognition that this surrender may also involve reparation for our sins. So one sacrifice can have attached to it uh, maybe a variety of objects or ends that are being achieved by that sacrifice. As such, another end of sacrifice is also the desire or the pardon for the result of sins themselves. So again, the four aspects are the gift itself, the minister who offers, the action of the offering, and the end. The end in general is surrender, but that surrendering may also involve the recognition of reparation, expiation for my sins. For to give myself over to God... It's going to involve giving myself over in weakness, understanding my weakness and my frailty. Okay. If there are four, if you will, aspects of sacrifice, we can also delineate different kinds of sacrifice. In a sense, what is the object of the sacrifice? There are sacrifices that are sacrifices of praise and adoration, There are sacrifices of propitiation, which are appeasement in securing God's mercy. There are sacrifices of thanksgiving, made in gratitude for that which is received, the sacrifice of the first harvest, the first fruits. And then there is sacrifice of petition or intercession. So sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of appeasement, sacrifice of thanksgiving, Sacrifice of Petition. Okay. Oh my goodness. ooh. Ready? okay? How are we doing? Hanging in there? Questions so far? I'm going to pause for a minute and drink some water. I know, it's a lot to take in. I told you we were going to be in the weeds. It is my understanding from the person who makes me actually successful, that's Donna Miller, that the first uh, of these presentations is now on our website. So I'm assuming the same pattern will be followed, that this will be available relatively soon as well, so that you could go back and uh, revisit some of this information again. Let's talk about some of the sacrifices that we see present in the old law. Of course, the canon of the Mass mentions Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek specifically. The sacrifice of Abel, Abraham, and his sacrifice almost of Isaac, and of course, the great high priest Melchizedek. Abel mentioned because his blood is spilled as he is offering his sacrifice. While both brothers obviously offer sacrifice, Abel's is pleasing to God because, as Scripture tells us, it comes from his heart. The shedding of Abel's blood is then an extension of the gift offered to Yahweh. Of course, again, Abraham's offering of Isaac is typology of what's to come, where Abraham is offering the very means by which God himself said he would fulfill his promise. If Isaac is dead, how will God do this? This is an unthinkable thing, and especially for a father and his son. But the person I love in this unfolding is Isaac. Because then all of a sudden we get up to the top of the mountain and he says, Isaac's there. He he, he, willingly submits himself. I think I would have put up a little bit of fight. Because while they're walking up, he's saying, Dad, where is the animal we're going to... Oh, we'll get there, we'll get there. And we get there, and still nobody else, and all of a sudden he finds himself. And the scripture tells us, the Lord says to his angel, Abraham, stay your hand. So this was like right about to happen. God bless Isaac. But also God bless Abraham, our father in faith. Because he didn't listen to what everyone else would have listened to. He said, Abraham, don't do that. I mean, I know that's what God says, but that's not what he really meant. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Satan in the garden. God didn't really tell you to eat from, not eat from that tree. Yeah, that's actually what he really said. God didn't really tell you to sacrifice your son. Yes, that's exactly what he said. And so I'm going to do what God commands me to do, even if it is, in a sense, from the eyes of men, irrational. It doesn't make sense. No mother or father would want to sacrifice their children. Quite the opposite. They would sacrifice themselves that their children may live. But Abraham and Isaac becomes a preparation for what will happen between father and son. This is only a figure, and yet a significant one, because it prepares for us how God is going to reveal. So all the pieces were there. All we had to do was simply look a little bit more closely. And then, of course, we've already mentioned Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, offering sacrifice in victory of what Abram has accomplished. But he's offering it to the God. Of Abram, Not to Abram himself. Remember, sacrifices can only be offered to God. There is, of course, the Paschal Lamb whose blood on the doorposts stays the hand of the avenging angel so that God finally can fulfill his promise of having heard the cries of his people, he bent low, and now he's going to set them free. Of course, the freedom that God gives to His chosen people isn't just the exercise of doing whatever they want. It is a freedom to do what? To return in adoration, to be in obedience and fidelity and love and relationship with Him. Freedom is always oriented toward God. Freedom is not license. And so the setting free of God's faithful people was to do precisely that, to free them to be in relationship with Him. What are they told at the very beginning? Uh, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go three days' journey into the desert to do what? To worship me! That first interaction between Moses and Pharaoh... Because you know, Pharaoh's going to keep debating, and he's going to keep bargaining. Well, the men can go. No, everybody's going go. Well, the men and the women and the children... No. Well, you can take the women and the children, but you've got to leave all the... No, every, God says, everybody, that's what we have to do. And so in the meantime, God is using the, the hardness of heart of, of Pharaoh to reveal his power, so that eventually when he reveals his true power, that he is indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of over life and death itself, they will know and believe. But that very first time all that we knew was that God wanted his people to go three days' journey into the desert to worship him. That's that first movement again. Liturgy is adoration, worshiping God. Liturgy is sacrifice to God. The priest set aside that he can teach. Everything begins with going to God, recognizing God in relationship with God. So even this beautiful plan of God's to let his people free from slavery to sin, the first step of that is, yes, to adore me. I'm not freeing you simply to do whatever you want. I want to create the environment whereby you can offer perfect worship to me. So the Paschal Lamb. The sacrifices that are given to us in Leviticus. The complex executions of those sacrifices. Why does God ask this of them? Why can't it be simpler for them to execute? Because there is, in doing the things of God, a recognition of our obedience and our fidelity to the things of God. If God asks of Abraham to sacrifice his son, then if he asks me to do something that doesn't make sense to me liturgically, my task is to do what it is he commands me to do. Echoes of our blessed mother saying, Yes, I am the maid servant of the Lord. Echoes of our blessed mother at the wedding feast at Cana. Do whatever he commands you. Doesn't make sense. Saving the good wine until the end. You do that first, and then so people are going to, because they're going to get drunk, and they're going to go through your good stuff. You keep the good stash for yourself later on. But this choice wine, this new wine, that is Christ Himself. Okay. So all of that which is expressed in the law itself is meant to provide opportunities for fidelity, to lead not only to an external manifestation of that fidelity, but then also to an interior fidelity as well. And then, of course, we come to the sacrifice of our Lord himself, which might be a good place for us to pause for today. Again, I didn't think we would get through all of this, and that's all right. We will get to what we need to, and then we'll leave the rest for later. Christ completes and fulfills, makes effective all of the sacrifices. He is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who fulfills the Holocaust of Abraham, allowing himself to be slaughtered For our sins. Of course, like his forebearer Abel, he is also giving of his heart inasmuch as he is giving of his body as well. And of course, the sacrifice of our Lord is a sacrifice of expiation. That evening praise, inaugurated now in the new temple, a pure oblation, that which was foretold by the prophet Malachi, sacramentally made present to us in the Mass, that Mass which was given to us at the Last Supper, the Last Supper, that event whereby God himself instituted that which he was going to give to us, from his time with his disciples, to the mystery of his cross, to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Again, these are experienced in time and space, chronologically in history, but are now of one perfect sacrifice for us, when we come to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. A perfect gift, a perfect priest, a perfect action in itself through the mystery of the cross, and then the perfect end this salvation that fulfills all of these other sacrifices which attempted to do that. But we're never going to be able to completely do that because always in relationship with God, who best to show us, to communicate to us what would be pleasing to God And that is God himself. There's more I want to say, but I'm going to pause here for today. In part because I've been on the radio for more hours than I care to admit, and so my voice is going out on me, so I'm going to stop before I lose it, because I'm also going to need it next week. I need to hold on to it. And my teacher is looking at me now, smiling at me, saying, Yes, guard your voice. He's probably going to come up here and yell at me later on. So, before we take our leave of each other, are there any questions or any issues or concerns or any thoughts? Jay? <laughs> I can, but I'm going to wait. because we're going to delve into a little bit of historical discursus on the unfolding understanding of the nature of this sacrifice when we, when we begin next week. That's why I'm pausing here. I want to wait a little bit on that history, which will hopefully explain that to you a little bit better. But thank you for the question. Yes, ma'am. Nobody likes you right now, by the way. Everybody wanted to go home. They're mad at you. That's okay. <laughs> hold on one second. I'm I, hold on. I'm gonna. Well, in in, in one sense, uh, let me put this back on now. It kind of like a Laurel and Hardy skit. Um, everybody knows who Laurel and Hardy is in this room. I realize we're making references to things that young people don't even know about. I made a reference to, actually on the radio we were talking about a toll-free number. Somebody didn't know what a toll-free number was. What? Well, because when you call on the cell phone, there's, it's all free. Okay. Didn't know what a phone booth was either. You know what a phone booth is, young man with the headphones on? Okay, good. He's the youngest person in the room, I think, so just to, just to take the pulse of the reality. So what's the difference between reparation and sacrifice? Well, in one sense, nothing. Sacrifice can make reparation for sins. And that's in what's happening in the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, is an expiatory, a sacrifice that repairs damage that is done. Now, the difference when we talk about it applied to ourselves in the Holy Sacrifice is that the Holy Sacrifice is an effective sacrifice of reparation. My acts of making sacrifice in reparation on behalf of the sins and offenses against the Eucharist, for example, that we're exhorted to do at the command of Our Lady of Fatima— may or may not be effective in the sense that I'm also a sinner. Now, when I'm celebrating the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass, I am doing that as a sinner, yes, but I'm offering something again. Notice it's perfect in the manner in which it needs to be perfect. The gift that is offered, the minister, because while I'm doing it, actually I'm configured to Christ, so he's doing it. I'm offering Christ, it is his body and his blood, and the end is Christ's work, the salvation that he himself has wrought. I merely am the instrument. This is something that our separated brethren get confused about, because they see the minister as sinful and weak and human, and wonder how can he do all those things. And there lies the answer, because of his configuration. So, in a sense, they're not separate from; they're not different from each other. Good question. Please rise. Let's call upon the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we take leave of each other, that we may arrive safely at our final destinations, and that the words that have been spoken to us truly may serve to give glory to God and strengthen us and sanctify and edify us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Walsingham and Dominus Phobiscum. Benedictio de Omnipotentes Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti Descendet Supervos et Maniat Semper. Amen.